0: My name is Dr. Tram Jones, and since 2019, my wife and I have been living in Haiti. This is the story of our life there and the patients we've seen. In our last episode, we started talking about the first time we held a survey in the mountains of Haiti. We talked about the rate of children that died under the age of five. And yes, I still think this was the single most important piece of data that we found from the study. However, it is one thing to know the rate of death, and maybe even some of the causes. The next step, of course, is to look at what can be done to help this. There are a long list of things that can be done to prevent children from dying in poor environments. Vaccines, breastfeeding, clean water. During the survey, we asked a host of questions that got at how often these interventions were done. We're going to delve into what we found and how it changes what we do today. Even in the United States, there was a massive push for breastfeeding of infants, particularly before the age of six months. Campaigns for breast is best, encouraging breastfeeding immediately after delivery. And I'm not denying that breastfeeding is important in the U.S., but the U.S. has one thing going for it, high-quality formula. The problem, of course, for places like Haiti, is that formula is incredibly expensive, even for city dwellers. Go into the mountains, and no one can afford it. So breast milk becomes even more important. In our survey, we found that 98% of the children had received at least some breastfeeding. The problem, though, was exclusivity. Most of the women, and this has been my experience in the last two years of seeing patients, introduced other foods early, often in the first month. We know this practice leads to increased child deaths. Not only does breast milk have important antibodies and nutrients for children, but food is generally contaminated with microbes, leading to bouts of diarrhea and pneumonia that the child is too young to fight off. I often trick my patients into admitting this to me by asking them, is he breastfeeding well? Is he eating other foods well? I usually get an affirmative to both, even if the infant is three months old. Much of this seems to be cultural beliefs, passed down from their own mothers. However, a large portion is availability. A mother who works in the market in the mountains of Haiti has no daycare, no breast pump, No other options if they need to leave for 8 hours to go sell produce. The child waits with the other children. So, to prevent the child from going hungry, they give the child solid food. Childhood vaccines are another method to prevent kids from dying. I am certainly not here to underplay the importance of vaccines in the United States, but these are vital in Haiti. Due to widespread vaccination, American kids are rarely exposed to measles, diphtheria, hepatitis A, and the like. But in Haiti, these are still present and still a cause of death. Vaccines are donated to poor countries for free by an organization called Gavi. But unfortunately, the supply of vaccines is only a small part. The biggest struggle is to get the vaccines in the right quantity to the health centers. The roads are dangerous for transport. Our city's vaccine depot was looted last year by a gang, and all the vials were destroyed when the local Ministry of Health representative refused to pay protection money. Ministers sometimes play favorites on which sites get supplies. And communication is a major challenge. While most people have cell phones, they often have not paid the minutes on their phones, so rapid updates on shortages are usually not possible. Many of the places in the country are still not wired for internet, and so frequently health centers are out of vaccines. This means that mothers will go from health center to health center, waiting and hoping that vaccines will be available in some quantity. Often even the health cards that track vaccines are out of stock, and thus the vaccines received are written on little slips of paper which are safeguarded by their mothers. 98% of children whose families we interviewed were born at home. That's essentially 100%. And why? Do they not trust the hospital? Well, maybe, maybe not. But let's think about it logically, even taking out the cost of the hospital bill. The hospital is about six hours away on a good day, probably consisting of walking, riding on a mule, and in the back of a pickup. So women are expected to feel their contractions and then hop on a mule for the next several hours. If labor is quick, they're going to give birth on the side of a mountain. If you were one of these women, what would you do? I know I'd be giving birth in the mountains. How does that knowledge change what we do as doctors? Well, I sure don't tell every woman to give birth in a hospital. I carefully comb through women when I am doing my prenatal visits and try to find the highest risk mothers, those with prior complications, prior C-sections, or first-time births. And then I ask them to do everything in their power to give birth in a hospital, even if it means finding relatives in the city for the last month of pregnancy. Another aspect that receives a lot of attention is clean water. We probably all recognize that drinking unclean water can lead to diarrhea, worms, and death in children. But this issue is not easy. Drill a well, you say. Well, yes, wells are great. They are incredibly useful for families. It is a familiar sight in the mountains to see masses of children trekking an hour each way to the local well to fill up their jerry cans with water for the family. Wells help with watering crops, animals, and convenience for humans, but they do relatively little to help with diarrhea or child deaths. And why is this? Several reasons. One, you often have groundwater contamination with bacteria. This means that a well is simply bringing up water that is already contaminated with bacteria or parasites. Second, without hand-washing and clean utensils and buckets, the water will get even further contaminated on the trip back to the house. This is why, in most studies, treatment is best at the point of use, i.e. in the house. So we talked to families. Most of them, 71%, had some way of treating water, whether boiling water, buying drinking water, or using chlorine tablets. For the most part, they chose chlorine tablets, but only 43% had access to a latrine, and this meant that when they were going to the bathroom, they were further contaminating the water table and the streams. Perhaps the most important thing we found was that family size correlated closely with the odds that a child would die. And this probably isn't that surprising. If you took the children that were born in families with 0-5 to five kids, each child had around a 7% chance of death. On the other hand, if you took only the families that gave birth to 6-10 to 10 children, the odds that any one child would die jumped to 20%. If you took families that gave birth to 11 or more, it went to nearly 25%. Maybe this is obvious, and maybe you don't think it's a major issue. Maybe you don't know many friends who have six or more kids. But the average mother in our study had given birth to 6.5 children, of whom an average of five were still living. Certainly, this cannot prove that large families lead to more deaths, but this seems like a reasonable leap of logic. For example, we know that when women in poor countries give birth to two children less than two years apart, the children have a higher likelihood of dying. And this is for obvious reasons. The mother's attention is split. The household budget, already meager, is now divided between children. The mother is not able to breastfeed until the age of two, as women in poor countries are encouraged to do. But do these women want more children? We covered this in an old podcast, but from our polling and anecdotal evidence, the answer is a resounding no. Nearly every mother I have with two or three children does not want to have any more. Of course, the constraint, the limiting problem, is a lack of access to birth control. This is the primary driving reason why we started giving out free birth control, not just at our clinic, but at two remote locations in the mountains. Why did we survey the community? Why not just rely on statistics for the country of Haiti? The primary reason is that we needed to know our patients. Our patients may be very different from the average Haitian. Indeed, we found that to be true. They were on average much poorer and their children died at nearly twice the national rate. It also gave us clues on how to fight the problem, that we needed to address family size and that we couldn't ask every woman to give birth in a hospital. It taught us that we needed to educate on breastfeeding, but we also needed to offer free formula for women who are completely unable to breastfeed. Just the simple act of gathering these facts can reduce the risk that a child will die in any of our communities. Thank you for listening. Every Wednesday morning, we publish a new narrative from Life Here. We are simply telling stories as we've seen them in Haiti. But Haiti is a fascinating country with a rich history. And there are many Haitian voices that can tell the story of Haiti in all its facets. And we encourage you to seek them out. As we made this episode, some names may have been changed to protect confidentiality. If you enjoyed the show, tell your friends or give us a rating wherever you find your podcasts. To learn more about the work of Light from Light in Haiti or to get involved, visit us on the web at lightfromlight.me. Thank you and God bless.